What's up, Llama listeners? Joe here, and I'm excited to announce our partnership with Blazing Star Barbecue. Blazing Star Barbecue is a veteran-owned business owned and operated by Mike Starr, a veteran of over 20 years of military service and a fantastic member of the Llama family. Through his amazing rubs and sauces, Mike is devoted to bringing unique flavors from his world travels to your backyard. And I got to tell you, I love me some Blazing Star Barbecue, especially the Reaper and brand new Scorpion rubs. I absolutely put them on everything, and they pretty much have rendered the rest of my spice cabinet obsolete. Check them out at BlazingStarBarbecue.com and Blazing Star Barbecue on all social media platforms and get your sauces and rubs today. We promise you won't be disappointed. Hey everyone, this is Trip Bodenheimer, host of the Shadows Podcast. Each and every one of us has a shadow. We understand that our shadows are products of our upbringing and obstacles we face. So tune in to hear our guests discuss every week how they turn their trials and tribulations into triumphs and success stories. They embrace their shadows. And that's exactly what we do here at The Shadows. We face them head on. We have a diverse group of guests ranging from athletes, military members, actors, actresses, authors, and entrepreneurs, and just regular everyday people. Head over to theshadowspodcast.com for all new episodes. Episodes drop every Thursday. Maybe saying to yourself, I don't have a story, but you're wrong. Everybody's got a story to tell at the Shadows Podcast, proud member of the Lame and Charlie Network. The Llama Lounge is a proud member of the Lima Charlie Network. Yo, welcome back to the Llama Lounge, a dialogue on all things life, learning, and leadership. This is Joe Bogdan, and I am excited and honored to welcome this week's guest to the lounge, Amanda Ono. Amanda is an expert at organizational development, HR consulting, and leading organizational change, and she is the Vice President of Customer Experience and of People and Culture at Resolver, a Kroll business and worldwide leader in defining risk intelligence. How are you, Amanda? I'm wonderful. It's really uh, great to be here. Oh, yeah. We're so grateful that, you, that you're here, too. I mean, you know, the first question I got to ask you is, what does it mean to define risk intelligence? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That's a great question. So, you know, we're a um, SaaS company based out of Toronto. And essentially mm -hmm. what our platform does is gather all risk data and analyze it in context mm -hmm. um, to really help reveal the impact um, on organizations and business of risk. And I mean, you know, certainly, um, COVID showed us that, you know, risk is a key element when it comes to decision making. I mm. think most folks, you know, we didn't used to talk about risk potentially around the dinner table, but, you know, right. COVID, you know, we we're having those conversations. What is your risk tolerance? Are we willing to take that risk? Mm. Um, you know, that's something our software does for leading organizations. And essentially what we help risk teams do is not be back office and administrative and maybe disconnect it from the business, mm -hmm. but really um, understand risk and uh, what it means to be a driver of opportunity. So, you know, we're really all about how do we have insights to make great decisions? And we're mm. proud that our risk intelligence technology has made an impact on companies all around the globe. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love that conversation, you know, because 
in the military, we're inherently, you know, at a point where we're at risk, right? So we have to manage that risk. But I think that, I don't know if it's the same and maybe what your experience in the industry is that, um, like, and when you're growing up into your career, whatever that profession, it's like, you're trying to like eliminate all risk. You're, you're, really, you're mm-hmm. not trying to manage the risk. You're not trying to accept any risk. You're just trying to get through. And then when you get into leadership positions, you have to start understanding that you have to manage that risk to get somewhere. And that switch isn't easy. Like a lot of mm-hmm. times, cause it's a whole totally. different world. For yeah. sure. And and there are positive risks that you can mm-hmm. take, right? Yeah. I, I think sometimes, you know, most people think about risk as only negative and the thing you have to mitigate, but there are positive risks you can take. You mm-hmm. know, when you think about relationships that you have with people, you know, that could be a positive risk and it could have mm-hmm. a really great upside um, or it could not. But, you know, I, I think really for us, it's about how do you make sure you have the data to make great decisions and and mm-hmm. really ultimately what our, what our platform does is make sure we have intelligence so we can help protect people's um, businesses, their their humans like mm. on site as well as their brands. And so I think, you know, risk is all around us. It's become definitely a, a, a more central conversation. And, you know, I, I do agree with you. Uh, great leaders have to take great risks mm-hmm. um, as they move through their careers. Um, it's one of the, the most exciting things about leadership, but also can be one of the most terrifying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've I've worked for some risk averse leaders before, and it kind of makes life kind of hell at the lower levels because totally. <laughs> you can't get anywhere, right? For yeah. sure, for sure. And it's always, you know, it's it's calculating. I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, anytime you know you're making a decision as a leader, there's a trade off. You know, it's there's there's great upside that can come with it, and I think it's challenging ourselves to ask what are the multiple scenarios that might happen with it when I make this decision, and am I willing to accept that? Do I have a tolerance for that? Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone has a different bar. You know, certainly in in private sector, um, you tend to be reinforced to take more risks mm-hmm. um, because often the risks don't have the same impact. I think when there's you know um, when when loss of life could be a very real outcome, you know, it mm-hmm. would make sense that from a leadership perspective, there would be uh, a higher risk threshold there for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there, there is a balance. I think risk and risk tolerance is very contextual as, as is leadership is contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a big part of the journey. Yeah. And I think being able to swap back and forth in those moments, I think that's probably um, where the most uh, effective leaders are they're able to identify you know this is something that i i can accept more risk here than i can over here right and for i think sure. that that ability is and i'm sure it's trainable but some people just seem like they have a, a their innate ability to be able to do that it's, it's interesting yeah my, my experience with this is that i think the more opportunities you've had to make decisions and mm-hmm. gain experience from those decisions the more likely you are to um, be able to shift your risk tolerance accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, I think some of it just comes straight up to experience. If you've experienced it more, you've seen more, you know, the trade-offs, um, and you're, you have more tolerance. Um, but you know, there are some people that are just naturally probably that way. Their brains are probably wired a little mm-hmm. bit more that way. Um, yeah. and sometimes those are people that are great to have on your team. Um, I generally find from a leadership perspective, having a balance of, uh, opinions and tolerance to risk and, mm-hmm. and tolerance to, you know, understanding the impacts of various scenarios and, you know, what the time horizon on those impacts might look like is a great leadership team to have because then you're going to have a balanced approach when it comes to making long-term decisions. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, that's, I'm grateful for the team I'm on right now because we have that excellent blend. So, because there's a lot of right. times that some of us are like, let's go. And then someone's like, hold on. Right. <laughs> and and how do you, this. how do you manage that? How do you right. manage that? So, you know, you're in yeah. a situation and someone mm-hmm. says, yes, let's go. And someone mm-hmm. says, no, let's, let's don't like, let's not. Right. Uh, I'm curious, how, how do you navigate that? Cause that is, that can be a challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it depends if I'm the person saying, let's go, but if it's, yeah. uh... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> me being a person on the team, right? I think um, for me, I think uh, being in what I what we call a staff position, where it's more strategic view, most of the time, it's not like life or death. So we can all say, hold on, stop for a second, right? Like, you know, uh, when you're down at the tactical level where I'm at the, leading a team and we might be actually doing something and that I had to have a lot of inherent risk, like risk to people in a deployed environment, I think that conversation is a little bit different, right? Um, I think it's mm-hmm. you have to process that information a lot quicker. And um, I think that like in that environment, one of my mentors had told me is like, you know, the worst thing you do is not make a decision at all. Like, that's right. <laughs> you you yeah, gotta you no. gotta move, right? You gotta yeah, improve your position. Right. You gotta do something. So uh, don't yeah. just like get in your own way here. So you gotta. But I think I'm making sure you make the time and discerning when this is the time I can accept risk. I can um, I can receive more information. Hey, you guys got data. I need more data to make this decision. Um, mm-hmm. you're saying don't go. Why? Let's talk about it real quick. Uh, Open minded sure. and then roll. So um, uh, and then just yep. not being afraid to to be wrong because that's gonna happen. Absolutely. Yeah. There there's two threads I would I would pull on there. I think. You know, um, first and foremost, I think one of the toughest decisions to make is when to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just as your mentor said, there there is a time where you actually don't need more information or mm-hmm. the information that you acquire will not make a better decision. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's classic analysis paralysis. And there is a point where you just have to decide. Um, and then the rest of the outcomes will help. Um, um, with the next decision that needs to be made. Um, but the other key aspect of that, as you said, it it totally depends on the, the impact of that decision. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like the way it was articulated by Amazon. They said, you know, there's, there's, um, a decision you make that's a one-way door, Mm -hmm. um, where you can, not walk back into it. So a good example um, on that is if you're building a fulfillment center for Amazon, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you spend, you know, $20 million to, to put up a fulfillment center. It's a lot of money, a lot of people, a lot of resource, but then there's a two-way decision and a two-way decision is you can walk back from. You know, it's mm-hmm. a decision to say, oh, we're going to have a team meeting and maybe we're going to change the structure um, or maybe we're going to test this product on the market, but it's a software. So it's not a huge impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a two way door um, because, yes, there's resources allocated, um, but at the end of the day, it can be walked back and the impact is not as great. And so I think also when you think about decision making and the risk tolerance, it's also, you know, challenging yourself to make you know, is this, is this, uh, can we undo this or Mm -hmm. not? Um, And, and many decisions that we, we make, um, you know, specifically in private sector are definitely, you know, they can, they can be changed. You can walk it back. Um, So I think that's a, that's another key element of, of that process from a leadership perspective. Yeah. I like that because when you look at it from, if you frame it that way, um, I think that, you know, you can come to some more solutions and realize it helps you manage that risk. Right. But there's times also as interesting, your perspective uh, and then people are listening right now. This is not normally the way you open up a Llama Lounge episode, so, <laughs> but I think we're getting into <laughs> a great conversation. Right. This is definitely <laughs> awesome. Uh, but when you 
So when you're working at a mid-tier, right, and you have people above you that they've already made that decision, and now you have to effectively execute that because you're the execution arm of this, and you're looking at it, and you're like, okay, well, I don't know if this is the best thing to do. We've already brought it up multiple times, but you know, we're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube on this. So now we got to effectively figure out how to manage the risk moving forward. I think that's a key skill that you have to develop to have the adaptive followership as well. Because maybe you don't have the authority to say, we're just going to change our mind now. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a great point. So I, I think there's a couple things I would consider, you know, as you said, when you're thinking about have you have you challenged the idea? You know, mm -hmm. did you have space to say, hey, these are the four things I think we should think about. And I don't know if anyone's thought about that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, certainly at Resolver, we've really tried to create that culture where you could, you know, kind of speak up and challenge mm -hmm. the status quo. So I think that's important. But, you know, as you said, sometimes you, you challenge and still you have to run with what the business needs or what the operation needs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think what I would encourage people to think about is, you know, there is a point where, you know, when you agree, you agree wholeheartedly mm -hmm. and you really, you know, you really work together to try to deliver on the vision that, mm -hmm. you know, someone above you has, you know, articulated. From there, I do think it's important that you include a, a, some sort of mechanism to provide feedback. Because I don't, I don't think, right. you know, when you're delivering initiative, you know, and, and everyone agrees that this is what we're going to test and this is what we're going to trial, you know, you have to row in the same direction. And certainly you, you know, there's, there's been times maybe you don't fully agree with it, but mm -hmm. the role of a leader is to, you know, help execute the vision of the organization at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And so from there, again, it's making sure you do have a feedback mechanism. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's saying to, you know, upper leadership, you know, we're going to go forward with this and we are going to give it our best and we're going to try to do it at the highest degree of excellence and with a very high level of integrity. And I also want to make sure three months from now we're reviewing and mm -hmm. we're making sure we understand if this was a good decision or maybe it's six months or maybe it's 12 months. But I do right. think it's important from a leadership per perspective to put some boundaries and timelines on you know, let's let this initiative roll and let's mm -hmm. see, because maybe, you know, six months from now, you, you know, you come back and you say, hey, Joe, you were right. Like mm -hmm. this does work. This is totally right. as you expect it. Or maybe you come back and you say, hey, these are the these are the few things that we need to tweak. And if we don't change them, we're going to go down a bad path. Right. So I, I think it's always in, you know, we're always empowered as 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 leaders to try to you know, help define the boundaries of initiatives that we run. Um, I think it's an important part of leadership. I think otherwise you can get really caught in the inertia of just doing something. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of us oh, relate yeah. to this on a personal level, right? Like you have the garage that needs to get cleaned out and it just, you know, years go by and you're like, how has it been five years <laughs> since I've looked at it? Um, and, and business works the same way. Like mm -hmm. I, I think if you don't have mechanisms in place to time bound initiatives to provide feedback, to challenge, you know, is the is the hypothesis we had on what this was going to look like, is it true or not? Mm -hmm. um, you can get caught into a world of mediocrity. And yeah. I think for organizations that constantly level up, um, they are they are in a, a continuous feedback cycle where they're always looking at what they've they've put forth and they're challenging themselves to say, is this are we getting the outcome we want? And and could it mm -hmm. be even better still with the learning that we've got? 
from the right. outcomes. Right. And that's a learning organization, right? That's what, that's what we're always trying to strive to be. And I think that's some people um, take that term learning organization. They expect that it's just like you're an academics <laughs> institution. It's like, no, yeah. that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And it's, and it's a mindset. I mean, to mm-hmm. be a learning organization, it, it's a mindset that you also have to train and coach to like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a learning organization? Right. It can be right. a fuzzy term, but what does it mean in practice? What does it mm-hmm. mean to challenge the status quo? Um, what does it mean in meetings um, to have conversations with people where you're you're um, having sharing different perspectives? I mean, one thing that we do very tactically is after um, almost every major initiative that we roll out, we do a retrospective. Um, mm-hmm. We bring in different stakeholders and we ask them how we did. Um, and you know, the the prime directive of a retrospective is to say we did the best with the information that we had at the time. And so, mm-hmm. you know throw ego out the door, throw those opinions out the door, because maybe you made a decision that in January seemed right, but now that you know more, you would have done something different. That's fine. That's yeah. that's part of the retro. And I think to be part of a learning organization, you're kind of starting to institutionalize that feedback loop and doing those retros after key initiatives mm-hmm. um, to make sure that you are taking that learning. What's then super important is you do something with it. Um, yeah. There's nothing more frustrating in a learning organization than getting feedback and then being like, that's nice. And then doing the same thing again. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to rapidly disengage your highest performers. And so if you want to really build a learning organization, it's creating the feedback mechanisms and then delivering on the, the aspects of that feedback mechanism that are reasonable to do in your organization. Yeah, great. This is a masterclass right here on culture. I think <laughs> I'm <laughs> loving it so far. But to get back on track, we, we went straight into a conversation about defining risk and all that. But first, you know, we, we got to find out a little bit more about you, Amanda, because, you know, the, the listeners deserve to hear your story and because we think we can learn a lot from the stories of others. So can you tell us how did you become the woman you are today? Oh, such a such a big question. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm very privileged to have a, a really great family that has always mm. encouraged um, you know, me to try things and to to take risks. And, you know, I was I was basically told that, you know, I could try something and maybe it didn't work, but I would I would learn from it. Um, you know, also had access to to lots of things growing up, um, you know, really active uh in in figure skating and in mm. music and uh, various sports like volleyball and field hockey. So definitely uh, a bit of an all-rounder. Um, when I started my career going into post-secondary, um, I actually wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to mm. be someone that sat on the side of a couch and helped people with their uh, uh, navigate you know, their internal workings. Um, and then I took um, abnormal psychology and realized that maybe that wasn't my path. <laughs> um, but I, I took a course in organizational psychology and it it just really, um, it really lit me up. You know, Mm. it's really understanding what's the psychology of work and how do you make um, organizations be highly effective through people. Mm. So that truly became, you know, the the framing of of what I consider, you know, my my life's passion. And so from there, had a very nonlinear career, worked in sales, marketing, and then kind of started really diving into 
uh, the human capital side of things. So recruiting, mm. learning and development, performance. Um, and then over the past six years, um, now working at Resolver, um, building up a people and culture practice from being, you know, 90 people in two Canadian offices, um, now upwards of 300 people um, as uh, in five countries and eight offices, you know, mm. a ton to learn uh, there and, and develop as we acquired companies, as we went through that change um, and and also, you know, as we continue to grow and scale, how do you retain your culture? How mm. do you do it well while still delivering on business outcomes? Wow. All of this I've done as a traveler. Um, I've been super lucky uh, to have traveled to over 30 countries. I've been to wow. every uh, every continent but Antarctica. So it's been an awesome um, privilege to get to do that. Um, and, and I truly think so many of the learnings that I bring to the table as a leader are as a result of some of the travels I've done. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of me in a nut, nutshell. Toronto, Toronto born and bred. Um, yeah. Really rooting for the Blue Jays right now. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's me. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about it. I think uh, we're going to be on the opposite sides of that that series. But <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but very cool. You know, we have a lot of things in common as in um, our development. And what. so I went to um, my undergrad. I started off in Homeland Security because um, just because my job set kind of like it seemed like a fit. But I realized I really didn't like it. It was I was doing well, but it was kind of boring to me. And um, so I, I started working at a social services center in the Air Force. And I switched my degree plan up to social sciences and started really learning about psychology and all that and all the different um, social sciences. And then um, when I went for my graduate degree, I went into leadership, organizational leadership. But I realized that it was such an easy transition because that's what it really is, right? You're dealing with people, right? And 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 they're not unrelated. Absolutely. So I think that's very cool. I love that, that you're looking at the therapy thing and then you start transitioning over. Uh, but I, what I really want to dig into is this traveling thing, right? You've been to 30 countries. I don't know why you haven't gone to Antarctica yet. I, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> it's a bit of a flight, but yeah, yeah it's yeah. definitely on the list, right? <laughs> but but you know, I think you're so right. I think that um be traveling and seeing different cultures and understanding how people do things make you a better not just a better business person maybe or or a leader but a better person like you could just understand so many things so so what what are some of the countries you went to and what are some of the lessons you kind of learned that you kind of think that you know really play into what you do for a living your passion um, yeah, that's a great question. So I, um, when I graduated, I worked for a year and then I saved up and I did five months where I went to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, mm -hmm. Taiwan, and Japan. Um, wow. So, you know, a lot of people did Europe, which is a great trip. Um, I was a little bit more interested in Southeast Asia. Um, I've also had opportunities um, to go to uh, Peru. I, I hiked Machu Picchu in Peru, mm -hmm. uh, went to Jordan. Um, uh, through India, Australia, um, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, um, you know, been through parts of South and Central America. Um, so, you know, I think travel really grounds you in a few things. I think first and foremost, it really helps you develop um, empathy and perspective taking, mm. which is such a key factor. I mean, you know, it's, it's very hard to pick up a Harvard business review and for them to not talk about how empathy is the next, uh, leadership competency that will absolutely be indispensable. Mm. And so I think you get it in lots of different areas, but for me, certainly it was very developed in traveling. 
you know, I think there's a few lessons that have really stuck with me. I, I think first and foremost is just, you know, human ingenuity. I'm, I'm quite a sucker for archaeology. Um, that's why I've been to places like Machu Picchu and, and Petra um, and Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Um, but, you know, just to see what humans have built is very inspiring. Um, you know, you, you see it on in archaeology. You also see it in, you know, present day, the level of resourcefulness um, people have. Um, I've slept on a mattress that was made of phone books. Um, mm. <laughs> I've seen, I've been on a raft that was propped up by water bottles. Um, that's very much because, you know, people do not have necessarily access to resources, but they make do with what they have. Mm -hmm. um, and they look at, they look at things for the utility and not the constraint. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing to internalize as a leader. You know, there's a lot of things that if you're resourceful and you roll up your sleeve, um, you can do. I think a second key thing for me is just resilience and adaptability. I mean, if you've gone anywhere, you know that you're going to miss a bus schedule, you're going to miss a train, and you just have to roll with it. Mm -hmm. And and some of the best experiences I've had have been because I missed a train, mm -hmm. and then something else happened. And so, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I always think about is, you know, you can't control a lot of things when you travel, um, but you can always control your perspective. You mm -hmm. know, you can always say, okay, missed the train, not great, but now I get to kind of explore a little bit more in this yeah. city that I never would have stopped in. Um, and I get to kind of meet some people and eat some food that maybe I wouldn't have tried. And mm -hmm. so I think there's a, there's a big pillar on resilience and adaptability. And I, and I think one of my final things that always sticks out to me when it comes to travel is just, you know, I know that we're generally, you know, present, present day kind of trained to, to, to think the world is very, very unsafe. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of evil and bad people in the world. Um, and I don't want to minimize that, but my experience has really seen through traveling to very various different places is that there's a lot of kindness mm -hmm. in the world, um, especially kindness to strangers. I mean, when I was uh, in, in Japan uh, with my parents recently who are in their 70s um, and we had someone walk us to the exact turnstile we needed to be because we were pointing at a map and clearly lost. Um, I've had a taxi driver in Peru, you know, turn off the meter and drive me um, you know, to a different spot in Lima because he felt I was unsafe mm -hmm. as a solo female traveler, um, where I was asking to be dropped off. So I just have so many stories of, of kindness. And I, I generally, my experience has been when, when kindness, when kindness is what you put out, it's, it's more often than not what you get back. Um, and a smile is a universal currency. I mm -hmm. think, you know, you're, I've been in circumstances that are, you know, potentially tense or, you know, people aren't understanding each other. Um, but I think there is, um, you know, humans are humans and there's things we do with our, with our body language and, mm -hmm. you know, our, our facial expressions that certainly can minimize potentially tense situations because I think people can see, you know, I think we've evolved to see kindness and intent in each other's eyes. Um, I think sometimes, you know, social media and many other things mean that we're not looking for it all the time, but my experience with travel and generally in leadership um, is that it's there more often than not. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I'm jealous because I've been, I've traveled a lot of countries too, but a lot of the ones that you listed off are ones that I've always wanted to go to and I haven't gone to yet. So they're on the list, especially like New Zealand, uh, Peru. I definitely want to do that as well. So that, that's very cool. You know, something I also thought about when um, traveling was just, it, it kind of, yeah, it grounded me, like you said, and, and some humility too, because there's something about going to a country and not being able to read the signs and having to figure all that stuff out and depend on the kindness of people that like, you're like, okay, I'm not all that. Like it kind of like puts things in perspective, totally. right? Yeah. For I, sure. I for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I was backpacking, it was, you, you know, you had a, um, a lonely planet book and, Mm -hmm. you know, you flipped the pages based on the city you're at. It was not a time where, you know, we're, you know, had mobile phones to look if we were, we were lost. And so, you know, I think it also just teaches you that we become really reliant on things that maybe we don't. Um, And it's like, can, can people read maps anymore? Do they know mm-hmm. north, south, east, west? Like small things where we become so reliant on things yeah. like GPS that maybe we forget that, you know, it's actually nice to just, you know, walk walk south sometimes towards a, a water or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, I, I just think there's some things where humility is part of it, but it's also sometimes just, you know, I, I think there's something to be said, especially when traveling to just mm-hmm. go analog. Um, yeah. I think when you're not looking down at your phone and you're looking up and you're looking, you know, around you and you're looking into people's faces, you're just going to have so much of a better experience. Yeah, I 100% agree. And speaking of that, the land nav skills, like I think <laughs> you know, people assume that everyone in the military have good land nav skills, and that is not true. Uh, my wife and I joke about that all the time, how we're both like spatially like challenged, <laughs> directionally challenged. We're like, wait, where were we? She's a lot better than I am. She could find a car. I'm like, I don't remember where we parked it. <laughs> right. It, it, it was one thing is my, I have two older brothers, and as they're teaching me, you know, helping teach me how to drive, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'd always say, oh, do I go left or right? And they're like, mm-hmm. you you go east or west, you need to learn it. And I remember mm-hmm. being so frustrated, just being uh, like, right or left is so much easier. And they're like, it's not, you just mm-hmm. need to get that. <laughs> and I know, again, so many of your listeners are probably cringing, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if you think about people that are just so accustomed to using their phones and not, mm-hmm. you know, previewing the route or looking, are you driving north, south, east, west? Like, I think there's a lot of us that just really rely on GPS. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, when you travel and you're in those locations where you you don't have access to that and maybe, you know, some of the comforts that we're so accustomed to, you know, you can't look up where to eat. You actually have to ask someone, right. you know, those are things that we used to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it's so interesting how quickly we've lost some of those human touch points um, that actually can make for a much richer experience. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I think, and, and, you know, and back to tying it to, you know, business and work and life, I think, yeah, those, those lessons that you learn, not only are they inspiring, which I think that we've all worked for uninspired leaders, you know, that people are just not very happy. I mean, those are things that, that help you become more healthy. So when you come to work, you're, you're, you're more effective. You're, you're, you can inspire other people. (laughs) Like you're happy, you're positive and it changes the environment in itself. So those are things that are very valuable. You're what you do in your off duty as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, there's such a push for, you know, what so many people call authentic leadership or being Mm -hmm. genuine in who you are. Um, And I think it's important because, 
you know, you spend more time with your work colleagues than you often do with your family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being able to bring yourself to work um, is really important. I, I think as a leader, there is, you know, some stuff you might not be able to share um, because there's mm -hmm. just certain things that, you know, maybe do need to, you know, be filtered uh, to your yeah. team. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're having a human experience, um, like, you know, health issues or a loss in your life, you know, those having people at work who understand what you're going through, right. um, they might be able to offer support. Mm -hmm. um, but it's challenging. Uh, it's challenging sometimes to share that. I think we still have the archetype for many of us that you have to have the wall at work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly for me, I've, I've been in, you know, situations where I, I think, you know, I've very much been socially conditioned that crying at work is not a um, acceptable thing for a leader to do. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a situation, you know, several years um, ago where we lost an employee. He he lost his battle to mental health and he mm -hmm. took his own life. Um, and to stand in front of a room of 150 people and share that news, um, I cried. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt in that moment, oh, I'm showing this... Um, uh, I'm showing this vulnerability and people are going to think I'm a weak leader. Um, but that was my own story and it was wrong because mm -hmm. actually the perspective that I got from people was thank you for doing the thing that we all need to do right now, mm -hmm. which is mourn and be sad. Yeah. Um, so I, I think more and more, um, you know, leaders are understanding that, you know, being authentic and bringing who you are to work is going to help create that culture and that environment where more people feel that way too. Mm. Um, because work can be hard. And, you yeah. know, I've had many one-on-ones with direct reports where they're crying because yeah. they're upset about something at work. And I always say like, when you cry, it means you care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's talk about it and let's make sure you have what you need and, and you're supported. But, you know, I, I think, I think, that veneer and that wall um, that sometimes we're coached to have as leaders is being very stoic or like, just don't mm -hmm. bring it to work. I think that's shifting a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think COVID made that shift too, because so many people who are in isolation, like your, your home life and your work just like blend it completely together. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think people had to show up more as who they were. And, and I, I think that's actually a shift that will help have richer relationships at yeah. work. And I think when you have those richer relationships at work, you're more engaged. And when you're more engaged, it shows up. It shows up, you know, for us, certainly one of the biggest things I look at is, you know, if our if our resolve rates are engaged and, and happy, they're going to show up that way in front of our customers. Yeah. And, you know, our business exists to serve customers. So you you want our customers to feel that you want them to feel they're they're dealing with someone that's happy and engaged at work. I think we've all been in a hospitality environment where we were served a burger by someone who didn't like their job. And you can mm -hmm. see it, right? <laughs> right. And right. so when you when you think about how employee engagement, um, you know, drives customer engagement, it's a very tight feedback loop, and it's one that leaders really need to pay attention to. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think you know some a lot of stuff that you said there. There's a lot to unpack. I think you know what you're talking about is bringing yourself to work, especially if you're going through something. It's important that your team knows. You know, because then what happened, what I've discovered, and I remember we did like, um, we were talking about this experiment that happened one time with, um, and they were talking about like, 
PTSD or mental health issues, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times we can't see those things. So when the person's on your team and they're going through something and they don't share it with you, but they're still like not as effective as they normally would be, some of the team might start resenting that person because they're dragging them down, right? But whereas if they actually showed you, right, they told you, then then the re- response would be totally different. And they showed that in like an experiment where they had somebody who, okay, this person's arm is broken. You got to get through this obstacle. And they're like, okay, so we got to, we know that their arm's broken. So we're going to help them get through and we got through effectively. And then the other team were like, your arm's broken, but you can't tell them. Like they're not allowed to know, but you have to act like your arm's broken. And then the team's like getting pissed because like, why aren't you carrying your weight? And it's like, I, and they're not telling them, you know? And and I think that that happens a lot when it comes to just teams at work. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating experiment and it's, it's so true. And I think, you know, it is, it is one of the most vulnerable things a human can do is ask for help Mm -hmm. um, because it shows that you maybe need something that, um, you know, that might make people perceive that you're not as strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but my experience has been that, you know, asking for help is a great show of strength. Right. Um, and I, I totally agree with you. You know, we've certainly seen it over the past several years, but when people understand um, what individuals are going through, uh, my experience is that the team absolutely reorganizes to help. Mm-hmm. Um, they absolutely collaborate and root for each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a key part. So, you know, it's, um, it's a challenging road and, you know, it's a, a big thing to coach, uh, folks on to feel more open to being vulnerable and being open to sharing. But my experience also has been that when that happens, um, you find the support comes back in spades. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that, you know, if you're in a leadership role, when you do that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that I think you're right. The culture has shifted even in the military where vulnerability, you know, with timing, right. Contextual, right. It's got to mm-hmm. be at the right time. But when, when you're able to do that and you destroy that, that previous archetype that we've all kind of held in our minds, you're giving your people permission to also share, right. When you're doing that from a leadership position and it does typically, you know, galvanize a team. I think this is a great segue into what I wanted to talk about next is you call it the not so secret secret to success. (laughs) And -hmm. we've been talking about culture throughout this whole thing, you know, and like the whole thing about, you know, happy employees, happy customers. And I remember, I don't know if you heard the story about like how, cause I'm from Seattle. So the, um, the fish market at Pike's place, you know, everybody sees that as a, a, a popular place, but they were talking about how that place almost closed. And then they started throwing fish to have fun because they're about to close. They're like, well, tomorrow we're done. We're just a normal fish market. Nobody wants to come. Uh, nobody's buying our stuff. And then one day they just start throwing fish and having fun. And next thing you know, a crowd started developing. Now people started wanting to come there. And it was like that fun was contagious <laughs> and it created an environment and it, their business started skyrocketing and now they're famous. And I think um, a lot of the things that you talk about with the culture, I think that's that that's a great example of that. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, the relationship between employee experience and customer experience is mm-hmm. is really tight. Mm-hmm. Um I think you know, at the end of the day, um we know we're existing to build a customer base, but my experience with this is customers are humans too. And and humans generally want to be around people that are happy and, Mm -hmm. and having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm often asked to come on to calls where it's, you know, a bunch of stakeholders on the customer side on the line and they're, um, 
very serious and I I spend at least, you know, two, three minutes just kind of joking around and building a relationship. Um, and people have said to me, oh, people in risk don't want to build relationship. They want to talk about risks. It's like, are they not people anymore? Because <laughs> I, I just I just that just has not been my experience. Um, and so, you know, I think that is, you know, a key part um of our growth i think also operationally when you look at how you would build a really strong customer experience program or a strong um, employee experience program the pillars are very very similar you know you have recruitment you have onboarding you have communication mm -hmm. you have engagement strategies like all those things are very similar um and i think there is a um definitely a feedback loop that when you use back and forth, you're going to get great results. Mm, yeah, I, I think so too. And I think, you know, it's interesting that we we sometimes automatically assume that for you to come off as professional, you have to hold this image that, and, and, it, and it almost translates to not looking like you're having fun at work. Totally. Right? And I was like, why is that? <laughs> that's, that's interesting, right? Because you're, you're right. We're humans. We want to, we're attracted to other people that are having a good time, but also they can still be professional. They're still executing what they're supposed to be doing, but they have a smile yep. on their face because they enjoy doing it. Like, hey, I want to go there. <laughs> For sure. For sure. There's a there's another study and I'll have to I, I can't cite it properly, but one of the challenges with, you know, having fun and being playful and being kind is it is often perceived as you are less competent mm. as a result. Yeah. So um, I think that's an interesting um, angle because the way I've always seen it is actually it's the people that can have fun and still deliver very well that actually right. probably have a much higher level of competence because at the end of the day, they've balanced um, emotional intelligence with cognitive intelligence, right. right? They've understood how to, you know, engage and build relationships in addition to solving the problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's, 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 you know, when you think about how um, emotional intelligence can be part of a, a secret mm -hmm. to success, I think oftentimes people will look at, you know, you know, are you doing the work? you know, are you checking the list, but you know, you can check the list and you can do it and have fun. It's not a right. binary situation. And I think, you know, we're starting to shift away from seeing it as binary. And, you know, most of the reading that I've done around emotional intelligence and why we've threaded it so into both our employee experience and customer experience is that, um, if if you hold intelligence as equal across two people, it's the person that has the higher emotional intelligence that is going to do better and have mm. more productive relationships and have better um, outcomes in terms of wealth and um, promotions. So you know, I think it's the 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 great irony in calling emotional something like emotional intelligence a soft skill mm -hmm. is actually that it's really hard. Right. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's trainable, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it is difficult because you have to be vulnerable. You have to be self-aware, right. you know, as you talked about earlier, you have to have humility. Um, but we've really threaded in, you know, as we've built our customer experience practice, we've threaded in many concepts related to emotional intelligence because you want people to show up with empathy. You want mm -hmm. people to show up and build relationships because whether it's with their colleagues or customers, that's what's going to get you to a really good result because it means they're they're building connection. And, you know, no matter what you do at work, if you're building connection within your team or with your customers, people are going to want to be there for the long run. Yeah. It's so interesting what you just said too, because I think that there's, 
there's this weird place where people think that good intent and good execution don't exist together for some weird reason. Right. And, and I don't know, the world is full of people that are really competent, but they're jerks and nobody wants to work with them. I mean, totally. <laughs> they're totally full <laughs> totally. of that. Right? So yeah. And, and I love yeah. the soft skill thing. Cause I don't, I hate even using that term because like you said, emotional intelligence, how many people have you met? Like I've met so many that might be able to manage socially, like their, their social thing, but they can't manage themselves. They're constantly like losing it. But for some reason they could put this facade and they hold it together to, to like deal with other people for a moment. But when, but they're a mess themselves regularly and they're not aware of how they're coming off. So then you can tell there's something weird going on. Yeah. There, yeah. There's so many, it's, it's really difficult to. For sure. To for sure. It. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think organizations more and more are realizing that, you know, that competent jerk is very divisive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a competent jerk that you keep on giving good projects to, that you keep on promoting, that you keep on giving more money to, mm-hmm. it's actually a message to your culture. It's mm-hmm. a message that, it doesn't matter how you treat people as long as you do well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly we have made at our organization difficult decisions on people that weren't, that were very high performing, but just were eroding the culture elsewhere. Um, It's a hard decision to make, but when you think about it, it has such a massive impact um, because I think it's, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it and how you make people feel. And if you're not really tuned into those things, you're going to build a culture where maybe you have a lot of people that perform at a very high level, but they probably don't like each other. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they're just going to look for the next company that will let them perform at a very high level and not care about the people they work with because mm-hmm. they're not motivated by relationships or culture. They're, they're motivated probably by, by status mm-hmm. and, you know, people that are only motivated by status and looking good, um, are often people that, that really will detract from your culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing, you know, and it's, it's a difficult decision for organizations to make, but you really have to look for those people that are, you know, eroding the culture because they, they will do it quickly. Um, it can become quite pervasive, like Mm -hmm. a, like a wildfire. And if you're not watching it, you know, um, employee attrition has one of the biggest impacts on a business's bottom line. Um, you're spending time to re-recruit, retrain, you have to Mm -hmm. deal with customers that are kind of ticked off that the person that they really liked has left. And so, you know, I think companies that aren't being mindful of those competent jerks and the impact that those Mm -hmm. competent jerks have, um, are going to be worse off. And I think certainly the tide has turned and and, you know, um, companies try to manage it in various different ways. Maybe they do like your classic anger management training as you're talking about. Or, <laughs> that always but, works. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Just the one hour workshop. I got yeah, it all worked out. Yeah. I don't know what the problem is. Right. So, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a deeper, um, um, there's a deeper part of it. And I think, you know, the thing that one of my mentors used to say to me mm-hmm. is if training's the answer, what's the question? Mm. And, you know, you can't solve an anger issue or poor emotional intelligence with just training. Right. You solve it because you hire people that have those characteristics mm-hmm. um, when they make a decision that doesn't reflect the culture of mm-hmm. empathy that you want to support. You talk to them and you coach them and you mm-hmm. make sure they understand why maybe that wasn't the best decision. Right. Um, and, you know, if they don't if they don't align to that and that is not a culture they want to be in or a value that they want to express, then you make the decision for them to go elsewhere. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think 
when you're building cultures and you're building cultures that are learning organizations and high empathy, you know, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people want to solve it with a training session, or maybe they put a policy or put a poster on the wall, doesn't solve it. It's, it's, it's deep work, um, to create a culture that lasts. Um, it specifically often comes down to training your managers, um, to really, um, engage with people in a certain way and to give feedback in a certain way. Um, for us, we've, we've adopted a lot of the philosophies that Kim Scott made famous in radical candor, Mm, which is if you step out of line, we're going to tell you, and we're going to tell you because we, we like you and we Mm -hmm. value your opinion um because we'd much rather tell you than you just find out one day you don't have a job anymore because you Mm -hmm. are a competent jerk right right? and so you know my experience with many competent jerks is they just actually were never coached and -hmm. they were never coached and given feedback because they're really smart and they're really good at what they did and maybe they weren't great at giving or receiving initial feedback their first few times. And so people just stop giving it to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think leaders should be scared when they stop hearing feedback from their team members and the wider org that is um, constructive. Like I I think for me, almost every meeting I'm in, I do skip meetings, which is talking to someone that is um, a report of one of my direct reports, um, which is a really great practice. um, that I that I, I modeled. Um, but, you know, in those skip meetings, they're telling me the things that they think we could improve or I could improve directly or their manager can improve. And they're sometimes rough. I mean, it's not right. always easy to hear. <laughs> um, but that tells me that we're building a culture where people feel safe to speak up. Right. Um, and anytime I'm in a skip meeting where someone just says, <laughs> great things. I get really <laughs> nervous because I mm-hmm. think there's something under there that I'm not mm-hmm. hearing. Um, and so I think it's important. And I think it's also important as a leader, if you're trying to build that kind of culture to poke around and ask yeah. those questions. I often frame it as saying, Hey, this is a thing I do really badly. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What else do you think I could improve upon? Mm-hmm. So I try to make it safe for people by acknowledging that I have lots of things mm-hmm. I'm not good at as a leader. Yeah. Um, so it opens the door. I think, yeah. you know, certainly, you know, to have someone maybe that starts um, shooting away at all the things you're bad at is also maybe <laughs> rough. But I think if you, I think you know, there's something else there. But, you know, again, if you set up the conversation um, for people to be vocal and to feel safe, um, you know, that's really how you develop a culture where people will learn, um, where people will have empathy and mm-hmm. that shows up with your customers. Yeah. And I think that your point, you know, even like the onboarding piece and selecting the right people for, it's hard to figure that out in just an interview, right? So you're constantly growing that, that culture, but, um, in the military, a lot of people like most of our audiences, military, they're going to be like, well, I don't really get to onboard people necessarily. Like, yeah, you do. There's a plenty of opportunities for us to select members of our team. There's a lot of opportunities for us to do that. And what happens is the reason why that competent jerk keeps rising is because, a lot of us are like, oh, that person is really good at that job. So they're probably going to be a good part of this team. And then you don't really look into the chemistry and the way that they they uh, they work with others. And and I remember Daniel Pink was uh, in his work. He was talking about um, one of his books was like, yeah, you just hire the most competent person, but they're they might not have any room to grow on your team. So then they start creating problems you didn't even have in the first place. Now and you're like, yeah, it, it didn't work out for you. Now you got personnel issues. You got all kinds of stuff. So like finding that person who's probably they don't have to be the most competent, but they are competent. <laughs> they have good for people sure. skills. They can work with each other and, and they can grow into the position. You're probably going to have a better team when you're making selections. 
for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, there, there's, you know, institutional onboarding that would be mm-hmm. pretty prescriptive in a military setting, but there's always the norms and mores of a team mm-hmm. that, you know, that you, you, you have control over. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's one thing I always encourage um, my, my managers to do is they bring on new folks is to talk about, you know, these are the values of our organization at Resolver, but right. this is how our values show up as the team. Mm-hmm. And this is how we set expectations as a team. And when we feel like you're not living those values or meeting the expectation, this is how we're going to talk to you about it. Right. And so, you know, it's something that I think regardless, you know, and this would go for the same if you're a big bank, right? A big mm, bank, you know, right. 40,000 person bank is also going to have a very institutional prescriptive onboarding program. But, you know, within that, there's just always a way a team can help set the dynamic and mm. the expectations. Um because that's happening whether an organization prescribes it or not. Um, Once humans get together and they get in groups, they set those (laughs) things up. Um, So why not set it up in a way that makes for really productive relationships? Mm -hmm. Um, It's something as we, you know, onboard people from a team approach, we talk about, we talk about, you know, radical candor. Mm-hmm. Um, a key concept that I talk about is assume positive intent, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as you're, as you're working with people, assume the best mm-hmm. and assume that if they do something that maybe you're not happy about, that they just didn't have all the context. So don't assume the worst of people. Right. Um, Um, we talk diligently about how we're going to give feedback and how we will directly talk to someone almost immediately if we feel there's an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I got some tough feedback from a peer, um, yesterday and there's times where you just, you get taken aback a little bit, but then you have to say, okay, well, at least I'm getting it. I'm getting it because Mm -hmm. he cares Mm -hmm. and he, he knows my intent and he knows that maybe something I communicated didn't land as I had hoped, Mm -hmm. but that's okay because it's going to be what makes me better. So I think even when you're in a big organization, you you still have an opportunity to set the team expectations Mm -hmm. and how you want to work together. Um, Because when you do that and you're clear at the beginning um, there's no surprises. Right. I think sometimes the challenge with feedback and when you're, you know, you have to give people difficult feedback is if you haven't set that as an expectation mm-hmm. and then you're like four weeks in, you're like, Hey Joe, it's just not working. You're mm-hmm. like, what are you talking <laughs> about? What do you mean? I thought I was doing a good job. But if right. I, on day one said, Hey, I'm going to give you feedback. I'm going to give lots to you. Cause I really want you to be successful. Mm-hmm. You're going to know my intent from, the get-go and you're probably going to be way more open to it. I think it's, you know, we generally don't like to be surprised. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think if you set that expectation, you, you are completely empowered to do it. Um, Because as I said, it's happening, whether you set it at the organizational level or not. Right. Yeah. No, I, I a hundred percent agree with that one too. Cause it's like, you you know, what you're talking about, sometimes those people keep passing through in the military, they pass through a little bit because we move a lot. Right. So you're always on different teams. You're constantly in a storming and norming phase. Right. And and you're moving and moving and moving. But I think that a lot of times people, they reward that behavior because they're executing whatever the job is. And then the leader might not be paying attention to what's actually happening with the group dynamics. Right. So and me and my buddies, we call it paper tigers. You know, they look really good on paper. They're they're crushing (laughs) it, but then they're like, nobody wants to work with this person. Right. No. And they're dragging down the team. And then, uh, and then, you know, another thing that I want to talk about is how does that, like, if there's people on the team that act like that, then nobody wants to work with, how does that even get to a point where you can 
embrace conflict. Because you talk about how important it is to be able to embrace conflict. If you don't feel that there's trust in that relationship, most people aren't even going to speak up and say something, right? And, and it's going to leave your, your organization at this weird juncture where it's not improving. So what are your thoughts on embracing conflict? Yeah, I, I think it's been, you know, critical for our growth. I think mm-hmm. it's critical to create a learning culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's critical to create an environment where you have high empathy. Um, and, you know, I think most of us have been in a situation where after the fact, someone we know or care about has said, oh, I really wish I told you that. It's like, mm-hmm. well, why didn't you tell me that? That was actually right. really important. So <laughs> yeah. you wanted the feedback in the moment, right? Yeah. But, you know, maybe someone was scared of hurting your feelings, so didn't give it to you. And so, you, you know, I think there is an art of giving feedback. It's mm-hmm. it's not easy. I think the challenge when people are engaging with feedback that may have conflict is they're actually just delivering it not that effectively. And so, you know, we really help train people on how Mm. to deliver feedback, you know, saying to someone, you know, when you're in this situation, this is what happened. This is how I felt. And Mm. this is how I believe other people will interpret it. So this is what I would recommend for the next time. So when you're going through those four steps and really making sure people understand This is specifically what happened. I don't want to speak broadly. I want Mm -hmm. to speak in a certain situation. This is specifically what happened. Um, This is how I felt. This is the impact. And this is what I would do differently the next time. Um, It is now the onus goes to that person to accept Mm -hmm. the feedback or not. Right. And again, people who are specialists, people who are super competent at what they've done, they are probably not accustomed to receiving any feedback because they've been so mm-hmm. good at their jobs. No one's given them feedback before. Yep. So I think you also have to train on the art of receiving feedback Right. to legitimately say, okay, well, thanks for having the courage to speak up because at least now I know. Mm-hmm. I think there is a tier where if you have circumstances and you create an environment and a culture where people have given that feedback and nothing is changing, Well, that's when you have to escalate. And that's when you have to make a decision as a management tier to say, do we want this paper tiger on the team? Or does it actually matter more how the team works? Because monitoring team dynamics, you know, as you called out going Mm -hmm. through the storming forming phases, Mm -hmm. you know, those people can be so detrimental because what happens is they actually prevent the team from getting to the point of performing. Right. And so, you know, as a leader, part of your job is to have productive and functional teams, Mm -hmm. you know, um, not to have individual contributors that are all, you know, trying to do their own thing. That's that's not how teams become successful. So I do think there's a point where managers also have to have courage to say, hey, you know, my team is going to be a little bit further back if this Mm -hmm. person goes somewhere else, but I know the wider team dynamic will become more productive. And so that does take courage and it's not easy to do. And trust me, I've been in that situation. I've made those choices and I've had to eat it for several months as we Mm -hmm. found someone that was going to be, you know, as good. Um, But the feedback I've often received from the team was thank you. Mm -hmm. This was a decision that now we, we, feel happy that you know that this person was detracting from our work and better still glad that you did something about it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to look at the, you know, we went back to, you know, to, to loop back to our conversation at the top about risk, you know, mm-hmm. are you willing to take the risk to keep the one person to sacrifice maybe the other five? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, do you want this person on the team or not? Are they good or not? It's actually looking at it in the holistic decision of saying, Hey, is this one person worth the other five? Mm-hmm. Um, because eventually those other five might choose to go somewhere else. They might to be choose to be part of a team that is more productive. Um, and the private sector now, the the market is very good for talent. I mean, you see the um, the remnant still of the great resignation because mm-hmm. in private sector, people have choice and they're leaving teams that they don't think are good or they feel like they have to deal with a competent jerk or they have to deal with, we're still a bully, someone right. that is really eroding from you know their sense of self-worth. And so it does take courage as a leader to make that decision, but I, I, would, I would really challenge leaders to think about the trade-off that they're dealing with when it comes to having that competent jerk on the team. Yeah. I mean, as a leader, if you're allowing that to happen, that inaction is still a, a reaction. You know, people see it and, and you're tolerating totally. it. It's allowing it to happen. And there's been many cases, you know, it might be a, not apparent right up front, but, you know, addition through subtraction, like you just got to remove That's that right. person. And then suddenly you, you realize that the team is starting to execute a little bit better um, at that point. It might take a little bit of time, but and production might go down a little bit, but the team starts executing better. So for sure, because the team in that state, when they have the competent jerk is spending a lot of energy, time and effort mm-hmm. dealing with that person. And there's start to get a lot of probably gossip and Mm backtalk about, oh my gosh, I can't believe this person did this in the meeting and what Mm -hmm. what happened there and why did they do that? And that's so annoying. So, you you know, essentially it's, it's, you know, your, your point is spot on about overall productivity because actually what just happened is you're diverting Mm -hmm. energy to something that is not going to further the team's goals. Um, You're spending way more time focusing on something that is actually not only, you know, eroding your engagement, but eroding overall productivity. Yeah. And what's not being said in those meetings that you're expecting some feedback on because that quote unquote bully might be in the room. Like people might not, I'm not even going to say anything. For sure. Because you start to, you create a dynamic where people Mm. get scared to speak up. They're Mm. like, I don't want to speak up. I don't, you know, I just had a, my kid didn't sleep last night. I don't need to be in a meeting where I'm getting someone, you know, all up in me. Right. Like, I mean, you know, there, there's a time where people just don't want to make an effort anymore. Mm. And again, as I said, you know, when you, if you're in a culture or you're in a team or you're in meetings at a very practical level where people are not speaking up and not sharing different ideas, um, your culture is going in the wrong direction um, Mm -hmm. because people are too scared um, or too disengaged to share an opinion. um, And that is, that is going to come back to you. Yeah, uh, I see it so much. And I remember the five um, dysfunctions of a team, it really broke it down. And I was like, man, yeah, I think it, I can't, I always pronounce his name wrong. I think it's Patrick Lencioni, but it looks like Lencioni. <laughs> but anyway, that, that that's a great leadership fable because it really breaks that down. And I was like, oh man, I've seen that happen so many times where, okay, you haven't built trust. So nobody wants to speak up, but now they don't even feel committed to the decision you made because they didn't feel like they were heard. And now there's no accountability. And Boom. And it just like, just constantly rolls down that path. And it could literally be that competent jerk, not even getting in somebody, they could just be rolling their eyes at that meeting at something that one person said, and that nonverbal shut them down completely for the next five meetings. I I've seen it happen so many times. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. And so I think, again, I, I think it's being swift with the feedback. I, I've mm-hmm. certainly given feedback to people to just say, hey, I know it wasn't your intent, but your body language looked really negative in that meeting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this was the situation. Again, this is I felt you looked really disengaged and perhaps dismissive. Mm-hmm. Um, the impact on the team is people are going to not want to share ideas around you. And so what I would suggest next time is you mm-hmm. really be mindful of that. You know, you're constantly going through that cycle of giving people feedback. And mm-hmm. listen, most times when I've had those conversations with folks, they've been shocked. They've been like, oh, I didn't even realize that. I didn't think about that. It was so subconscious. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Great. We've talked about it, but Mm -hmm. now you need to recognize and you need to own that behavior. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I always, you know, my style from a leadership perspective is to really help um, provide people with the language that they need um, to go work with their peers. Mm-hmm. You know, if I give that feedback to someone, I don't want to go to the person, the aggrieved party and say, oh, by mm-hmm. the way, Joe didn't mean it. It wasn't a big right. deal. I want you to go to that person and say, mm-hmm. hey, I-, I get my body language wasn't great and I really apologize and that was not my intent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important also from a leadership perspective is that you are enabling people on your team to have those conversations with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise you're just setting up a dynamic where as a leader, you always need to step in mm-hmm. and you're setting up a dynamic that is closer to being a parent child dynamic versus yeah. an adult to an adult dynamic. Mm-hmm. And it's really important. You know, the, the sign of a leader is you should be able to step out and not be there and your team still functions really well. Um, I think that's, that's one of the the biggest things. I mean, I've been, you know, in interviews for executive positions and when people say to me, oh yeah, I mean, my team's so great, but I, I can't go on a, a two week vacation. They just really need me. Mm. Um, to me, that's a sign that they haven't built a team for scale because yeah. you actually should need to be pulled out for, or should be right. able to be pulled out for two, three mm. weeks at a time fairly easily, right. um, because your team is enabled to be successful not always true when the team is new and maybe lots of folks are new, but generally you should get to a point where Mm -hmm. you can step away. Um, And if you can't, there's, there's probably something that you haven't necessarily designed for scale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, the feedback conversation that we're having, I love it because, and what you talked about how we're teaching people to give feedback and teaching people to receive feedback. I don't think there's enough of that, whether it's in the business world or in the military. Um, you know, we talk about you, you're, you're expected to give people feedback and you need to be able to receive feedback, but the how-to often is kind of left out, left to your own devices to figure it out. And, you, and then you get all kinds of results. And like, there's a point where you, you brought up, um, you know, someone gives you some feedback and how you receive it. You know, as a leader or anybody, you have a decision at that point, like how I receive this is going to set the tone for the rest of the time that this person gives me feedback. If I act a certain way, then they're not going to want to give me feedback anymore. So I have to respond in a way that I'm receptive and not just respond back with feedback. Well, you know what? I feel like um, you did something two weeks ago also. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to totally. one up you. Right. And that, and that totally. happens a lot in these environments. So I, I think for that's sure. a great point. Yeah. Great yeah point. For sure. And it's, you know, I mean, we all have ego. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think we can totally throw ego at the door and listen, getting feedback that you're not doing a good job sucks. No one likes it. Mm -hmm. But if you know the intent and Mm -hmm. you know that at the end of the day, it's so you can get to a better place, it's it's really important. And Mm -hmm. I I think your your, um, thought on role modeling is so Mm -hmm. important. I think Mm -hmm. about that specifically to, if you say to your direct reports, hey, I Mm -hmm. want your feedback when you think I've done something Mm -hmm. um, 
wrong or I've misstepped. And mm-hmm. then when they give you that feedback, again, you explain it away or you react super right. defensively. The mechanism that you've just um, sent to them is that don't give me more feedback because I actually mm-hmm. can't take it. Right. So it's hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think, as you said, it is a decision. And if you truly believe that you want to build that culture, mm-hmm. um, you have to role model it. And listen, we're yeah. not perfect. We're going to make mistakes, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's actually okay. And I've been in circumstances where maybe, again, wasn't the greatest day for me to receive feedback. Maybe I didn't do it the best as I, I would have had mm-hmm. on my optimal Amanda day. Um, yeah. But I follow up. I just right. say, hey, listen, like, that wasn't the greatest. I, I acknowledge that and mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I want to do better. So yeah. I, I think you also, you know, to our earlier point about being authentic and human at work, you mm-hmm. have to call out when maybe you had a human moment and you felt a little bit more hit by mm-hmm. a piece of feedback than others. Uh, and all we can do as leaders is to get better and better mm-hmm. um, at those moments. So the missteps are less and less. Um, but we also have to acknowledge as as leaders that we are humans and we will sometimes make a misstep. But acknowledging and owning when we've made missteps is probably um, one of the key things that we can role model because it, it shows to the org and your direct reports and your wider team um, that that is going to be a reality. But if you take account ability for it we learn together yeah yeah man amanda this has been such a great conversation i'm really grateful that you came on uh i think a lot of people can get some nuggets out of this one and um i I definitely want to give an opportunity if people wanted to find out more about you and your work in resolver how do they find how, how do they find you Absolutely. Yeah. I can be found very easily on LinkedIn. So happy to connect with folks or you can follow me. I'm going to start um, ramping up some of my thought leadership articles again. Mm. Um, And definitely for folks that want to learn more about how, you know, technology um, can drive insights towards risk intelligence, would love to uh, check us out at resolver.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, we got to have you on again, because I feel like we could have went into four different other directions of this conversation. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I love these conversations. I learned a ton from you. So I definitely will need to get back on your calendar again soon. But before we let you go, we got to hit you with what we call the life learning leadership rapid fire. Just four questions, however you want to interpret it, however you want to answer it. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. First question is, what is your favorite leadership trait and why? Humor. Mm. Um, Because I think humor, um, I think humor and intelligence are very strongly linked. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a big part of it for me. But I think humor is also related to um, being self-aware and Mm. uh, very perceptive of situations. So um, I'm a big person, you know, I I like working with leaders that can tell a joke uh, Mm. and have fun with things. Because again, I'm a human too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even if I'm leading a big team, I like to have fun as well. Um, So I think leadership uh, humor is probably the the trait I look at the most. All right. Fantastic. All right. Next question. Um, You talked about Radical Candor earlier. That's a great book. What is another book that you would recommend to our audience? There's a great book called The Trillion Dollar Coach. Um, It's about someone that coached a bunch of leaders in Silicon Valley, but really interesting um, in terms of his no-nonsense approach um, to coaching and providing feedback to to people who have more money than any of us can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, really interesting, his approach um, and, you know, how he motivated people to be both, you know, human and tactical. Mm. 
Okay, awesome. We'll definitely add that one to the show notes with radical candor. All right. Third question. All right. So if you had one workout you can do, it's like one movement, you know, it's not, it's like a lift, a particular lift, or, you know, it's a particular movement that you could do. And you can only do that one for the rest of your life. What would you pick? Okay, so it can't be like walking. It's got it, it can be it can <laughs> okay, be walking. Okay, yeah, okay. It could be anything <laughs> like but it's only one physical activity basically. <laughs> oh. What about eating? What about moving my hand to my mouth? To that eat? works. I don't know. This is tough. Okay. I don't know. I really love food. 12 ounce curls. <laughs> <laughs> um it would, I would probably go with walking. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think some of my best experiences traveling have just mm-hmm. been being in a city and mm-hmm. not getting on the bus or not taking the train, but walking around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live near a really beautiful park in Toronto. Um, so, you know, try to walk every day, be around mm-hmm. big trees, big old hundred year old trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, a great way to be actually actively meditating. So I would yeah. go with walking. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that that's a common answer because I think walking is so great. I just went on a, just a little ruck, a walk around the neighborhood because I needed to get out and put some a pack on and walked around. And have you ever heard of the book, The Comfort Crisis? It's, I haven't. It, it's come out not too long ago. Um, I think it's Michael Eastern. But um, yeah, he talks about a lot of things about how, you know, we've gotten to this world of comfort and how, you know, putting yourself out of that comfort, whether it's physical or doing things hard, um, can really benefit you. And and he talks about walking, rucking and uh, running and all that stuff. So yeah, it's a, it's a good, awesome. it's a good read if you have a chance. <laughs> yeah. And I think getting out of your comfort zone, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's what traveling does. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's why, you know, traveling continues to challenge you as a, as a leader and as a human, mm-hmm. because you, you, you don't, you're, you don't have any of the comforts around you. You don't know where to go. As you said, you don't necessarily speak the language or know how mm-hmm. to read the signs. Um, so I think whenever you can, you know, putting yourself in that environment and allowing yourself um, mm-hmm. to be uncomfortable is a huge growth, growth opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Final question. It's the deep question of the day at the Lama Lounge. We're all about life learning and leadership. So how do you find your harmony between life learning and leadership? How do I find my harmony? That's a really, this is a very deep philosophical question. <laughs> I would say I'm pretty mindful of my time mm. and I really try to listen to my body. You know, I I think there's times where I feel more stressed than usual and I realize it's just because I haven't necessarily been out for a really nice long walk. Mm -hmm. I think there's times where I feel bored and it's because I haven't read a good book Mm. uh, lately. You know, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's a, for me, the harmony is being self-aware Um, and asking myself the second question. So the first question is, oh, I feel tired or I feel stressed or maybe I feel annoyed. Um, But it's the second level question that Mm -hmm. I think matters, which is why. Mm. And I think I I ask myself a lot of why questions. um, And I think that's what gets me to the answer um, that I can then do something with. Mm. So you just, that was a deep philosophical question, but you just gave, responded with a deep philosophical answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's all about the why, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much once again for coming on, Amanda. We got to have you on again for sure. 
Awesome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. So, and to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in again. Um, check out Amanda's LinkedIn page. We'll have it on the show notes. Uh, and also um, some of the great work that she's been doing over at Resolver. Um, you can go to Google that or, and we'll put that also on the show notes. And um, shout out to our sponsor, Blazing Star Barbecue, Mike Starr, running his veteran-owned business, bringing the flavors from his world travels to your backyard. Check him out at blazingstarbarbecue.com. The Reaper is King, my favorite rub. Check it out. All right. And then until next week, uh, as always, be safe, stay healthy, and llamas out. Thanks for tuning in to the Llama Lounge podcast. Be sure to visit the homepage for links to products and services related to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. See you next time.